Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. Uh, today in the podcast, we have uh, Mr. Abdullah Bernier. Welcome to the show, Abdullah. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Super excited to have Abdullah on. I've been, um, folks will be familiar uh, with kind of, it's like episode 30 or 31, 32, somewhere around there. We're talked about Ukraine and uh, these are interviews I did kind of last March or so, just sort of in the onset of the, the Ukraine crises um, with a lot of refugees kind of coming over to North America and other parts of the world. And uh, I connected with the BCBA in, um, in uh, England who uh, had done a lot of work in um, in uh, uh, in Kiev and uh, and uh, with with uh, Ukraine ABA and that sort of thing and uh, anyway we discovered there was there's there was a lot of uh, autistic folk at, uh, that were coming folks that were coming out of Ukraine and in North America and uh, and and many of them you know had sort of you know quite quite good ABA programs kind of happening in Ukraine. There, there's, a, there's a whole Ukraine society for ABA and so on and so forth. And so these folks are coming over and we we're trying to sort of provide some resources for uh, schools, for, you know, families that families and groups that were taking in refugees to provide supports for autistic children um, and kind of have that, you know, um, and I hate using this term these days because it's become a bit of a buzzword and maybe not always, you know, uh, you know, um, really what it is, but a trauma-informed approach, but a truly trauma-informed approach in, in that these folks were, had literally undergone severe, you know, um, uh, humanitarian crises. Um, and in kind of my research, I was trying to find if there was sort of any other ABA research or just autism research related to refugees. And I found a little bit, um, uh, uh, but not much. Um, and it was really difficult to sort of track things down. But, uh, you know, uh, I've become pretty adept at the Google search and and sort of just finding things. And, and I don't know what keyword I ended up putting in, but Abdullah came up. Um, and, and I was even more happy to find out that he was one province over here in Canada, in Alberta, uh, doing some work around, uh, well, I'll, I'll just read the title. So I found this, art, this, art, this, this article, which was actually the, his thesis that he wrote, called Autism in the Context of Humanitarian Emergency the Lived Experiences of Syrian Refugee Parents of Children on the Autism Spectrum. Well, this was exactly what I was looking for sort of back then, when I was kind of trying to, trying to come up with this stuff. And 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 you know I know I I often say things that will end up me getting letters and uh, you know I haven't gotten letters yet so maybe maybe this one will do it uh, but you know I had some concern around sort of you know how much energy we were putting into you know supports for Ukrainian refugees not that we shouldn't be and I, I mean everything we're doing for them I think we should be doing and is necessary and probably more is necessary absolutely. But it seemed interesting to me that sort of, you know, there are lots of other crises going on in the world, um, you know, many happening as we speak, 
that just weren't getting the press and certainly weren't getting, you know, um, the information being shared. Um, and and I thought, you know, the Syrian refugees was a, was a prime example of kind of that. Um, you know, uh, this has been going on a lot longer than the Ukraine, the Ukraine uh, crisis. Um, and uh, it's going on right now, and it was going on long before um, in, in sort of a lot of different aspects. In fact, there's quite a bit of sort of, I think, um, um, you know, refugee activity in the Middle East. I actually had a, had a buddy, um, uh, kind of colleague, he uh, was a documentary filmmaker, and he was filming the just the, the, the horrible sort of events of uh, ref, ref Syrian refugees going across uh, the Mediterranean into sort of Greece and Turkey and other countries. And, you know, just, you know, uh, just incredibly, just that, 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 the war is one traumatic experience, but the escape is a whole other traumatic experience. Um, And so many, and so many more kind of embedded in there. And it was disappointing that I wasn't seeing much work being done in that until I came upon uh, Abdullah's thesis, um, and and so I was excited to reach out to him and uh, see if he could co- would want to come on the podcast to talk about his work. And I'm also really interested, as folks know, in kind of learning about other cultures and helping you know behavior analysts and other folks to kind of work with, particularly with autistic folks. Um, um, you know, getting kind of you know culturally cultural competence in sort of different areas and. Uh, uh, certainly, the, the the Arabic conversation is one I haven't had much of. I I, I have actually I did an interview with um, uh, um, a behavior analyst uh, in uh, in uh, in the United Arab Emirates. Um, uh, the first behavior analyst there, a woman uh, named uh, Sharifa Yatim, um, and she talked about she talks and she talks about. Um, um, sort of some of that Arabian context, and um, and that obviously will, will be probably released in the next couple of weeks, so folks will be able to hear that before this one comes out and get some context, and it'll be in the show notes. Um, but it's, it's, I think, something we also know is that you know, for for all of these sort of cultural conversations, they're all context based. You know, Abdullah's paper speaks about you know, um, you know, just 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 a few parents um, um, in in the context of Alberta that came from Syria. He's really just talking about their stories. You know, he's not talking about the 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 Arab story because they're all different, um, and certainly they're going to be different in Alberta versus the UAE versus anywhere else, and so. I think it's great to get multiple perspectives on on these conversations, and so really looking forward to kind of having this one. Um, and also just kind of want to you know, you know, uplift this work. I is 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 interesting. I do. I uh, I reached out to uh, a woman. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you know her. Her name is Doctor Megan Sullivan Kirby. I don't know if you've ever had anyone with that name reach out to you, but I was talking to her. She's doing um, some kind of early work right now i'm gonna have her on the podcast i think and maybe maybe in the summer or in the fall or something when things are moving along further but she's doing some early work around some interventions for refugees some really cool stuff she's doing anyway in our conversations she actually said she happened upon this thesis herself and and was reading it and using it for you know as, as a resource as well and uh and we definitely talked about she said you definitely want to do the interview with abdullah before you interview me because because he's going to have a much better perspective on a lot of this stuff. And then, then come to me and we'll talk about interventions uh, and hopefully I'll have some in place by then. So 
people are finding your stuff online and talking about it, even though they're not talking to you. And and so uh, I hope that uh, motivates you to keep going. Uh, I'll stop rambling now and just give you a little chance to kind of introduce yourself. I, I kind of like to know, Abdullah, first kind of what you do. You're not you're not a, a BCBA like a, a lot of my guests, uh, which is totally fine. But you have done some behavior consulting work um, and. Uh, you're now a, a doctoral student um, at, uh, at the University of Calgary. Um, so maybe just tell us kind of how you got into doing work, um, you know, with autistic folks um, and what led you to uh, write this thesis. For sure, absolutely. Um, thank you for um, your kind words. And, you know, that definitely, um, does motivate me to continue this work. So I, I totally appreciate that. Um, so I guess a little bit about what I do. I, um, I guess I'll meet on the one side of the token in terms of my work with autism. I, uh, started out actually quite young. Uh, my mom was, uh, first a behavioral aid and then a behavior consultant for, uh, children on the autism spectrum. So I was really kind of, um, I was exposed to that at a very early age and then gained a real passion for working with individuals with um, autism. And then as I continued, I myself became a behavioral aid and through gaining all the expertise from various professionals, um, I became a behavioral consultant. And um, that's kind of that one side and that's something that I still do to this day. And um, I was really interested on learning more about autism. So I decided to, after my undergrad at uh, the University of Calgary in psychology, decided to continue with um, my uh, education uh, in psychology and apply to the School of Applied Child Psychology program at the U of C, specifically uh, working under a uh, supervisor, uh, Dr. Adam McCrimmon, who specializes in autism. Uh, so hoping to really gain more expertise and knowledge uh, around autism, because that was really a big interest of mine. Um, and then couldn't get enough, decided to do uh, my PhD, continue learning um, and gaining more expertise around autism because I always I feel like there's always more to know and more to learn. Um, and in my master's, um, it was interesting because um, initially my work was going to be around intervention with interventions with autism, but then COVID, COVID happened and I guess it was, uh, it just happened to, you know, I stumbled across, you know, a lot of work around uh, Muslim families and Arab families. And that really kind of coalesced with my experiences as a behavioral consultant, because I had realized that um, and recognized that when I was working with a lot of these families, um, and particularly I was contracted to work with a lot of uh, families who were Arab or Muslim, and they... Um, and immigrant families as well, who a lot of the time missed out on some of those early intervention experiences and gained uh, supports and services for their child at a much later age. And I always wondered why that might have been the case. Um, and through doing you know, work and research, I realized that there, there are a lot of factors to it. And a lot of it has to do with you know, a lack of knowledge um, or uh, feeling that there's stigma or pressures or um, feeling as though they, it, it is something that they're unable to come to terms with. So that really motivated me to, to do work to kind of better understand, um, how 
my experiences with individuals in my professional work, you know, lined up with what the research is saying and what research I could uh, produce in line with, um, or sorry, in terms of, you know, how that might be coming about and why individuals are missing out on those early experiences because we, we know that, you know, inter- early interventions would really has the most optimal developmental outcomes for a lot of the ki- these kids. So it's something that's super important. Yeah. Your mom, so your mom was working in this field. Was that in, in, in Calgary too or in, in Alberta as well? Yes. That's nice. right. Yeah, yeah, right on. Very cool. And is she still do, in that, doing that work or, or is she retired? Um, she, yeah, she still does a little bit here and there, but she likes to, you know, she's trying to fade herself out and trying to retire, but it always keeps calling her back. Yeah, yeah, right on, right on. So you said that somebody you've been you were you get kind of contracted to work with sort of Muslim and 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 uh, and, and Arabic families. Um, is that because because you are Arabic yourself, or is that because you speak the language? What what's sort of the reasoning why they they sort of want you to work with those families in particular versus others? Um, I think that, yeah, has has to do a little bit of both. And I think that it is because I am, you know, I think that because I am Muslim and I am Arab. So hmm. um, a lot of the families have requested that to be the case just because of, um, you know, at the t- before they before they meet me, they kind of anticipate that I would understand some of the experiences or tensions that they're, you know, hmm. undergoing. And um, I think that it's it's helpful for me because a lot of the families that uh, you know our immigrant or refugee families that I work with mm. um, have a you know a lower competency of the English language and not to say that I'm completely you know fluent or that I have a great you know knowledge of Arabic myself mm. but I think that we're able to kind of fill those gaps for for one another and um, have a kind of a good understanding and I'm, I truly feel that you know the, the parents are kind of the, those those gatekeepers for the kids so for sure. um, I'm, I'm able to kind of you know, work with with the families based on their their comfort and understand some of those cultural experiences. And in a lot of cases, that's been helpful to help them navigate some of the, um, you know, intervention strategies that we're proposing. Mm -hmm. And I'm able to kind of adjust that for them and allow for them to um, just a greater treatment adherence, I feel. And I'm not at all surprised by that. I mean, this is sort of the answer I expected. I, I, uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, for, you know, for from some lenses that kind of seems obvious, but you know, I mean, I in some of the interviews that I've done, particularly with um, um, sort of North American-based behavior analysts that go over and work in in uh, you know, in either in you know in, in Africa or in uh, you know kind of Middle Eastern countries and whatnot, um, you know, they all tell me that you know as generally white identifying um people themselves they really see the need in the particularly in those communities for you know professionals that look like them and professionals that kind of understand you know their culture and, and that and that and but 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 looking like them is a big piece um and and it's not because they're sort of you know discriminatory or whatnot but we're talking about in those countries you know, there aren't a lot of white people, 
and um and 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 you know we we do we we stand out and and you know i think we already come in with sort of an assumption that we we know less we haven't had those experiences and whatnot and that's completely makes sense i mean um uh that, that there's a need for that uh but i think some folks tend to sort of you know and i think this is the bias as well um you know um well, where i'm kind of going with this but and to ask what why do why do uh why do people from a certain culture need someone from their culture to work with them mm. you know um and and for all the reasons you just said <laughs> that that's why you know it, it's not just comfort it's not a it's not a, a race specific issue it's a it's a it's a it's a safety and and uh and comfort and you know and and really just really relating on things i wanted to ask a couple questions just sort of um and again, a lot of folks may know the answer to these already, but um, I think it just helps for the for the context of the conversation. You said um, you, you identify as kind of Muslim, not kind of as as Muslim and, <laughs> and, and, and Arab. What's what's the difference between the what 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 do those terms mean? I'm, and a Muslim, I, I, I kind of connect to to more to, to kind of uh, uh, the religious side of things, but I know that's a really surface probably understanding. So, what, what Muslim versus Arab? What what what, what are we talking about there? Um, yeah, totally. Um, so just as you said, uh, to kind of build off your point there, uh, Muslim is that the religious, you know, it's, it's a religious, so it's, um, you know, the Islamic religion, Muslims are those who adhere to the mm. Islamic religion and religion, and they often, you know, um, will share, you know, convictions and beliefs associated with the, uh, Islamic religion. Um, and it can really, you know, span across, it is a, it's a global thing. So, you can have, you know, Muslims who are, you know, Arab Muslims who are, um, you know, of a African descent or of, of North American descent, South American descent. So it really kind of, it's just kind of a, it's that the Islamic religion that I guess is, and I talk about this in one of my articles, it is, um, and of course, a culture and, you know, the political atmosphere and, you know, socialization and all of these variables do impact um how religion is understood or practiced in many different parts of the world but uh in essence you know the culture and the the religion are um two separate things in that mm. you know a, a person from any culture could be you know could be a muslim and uh when we talk about arab i believe you know the arab world consists of 22 nations um so it is huge mm. and it is diverse in and of itself because mm. um you have you know and I, I think I speak to this a little bit in my thesis, but when we're talking about Syrian refugees, um, you know, there's, I guess, pockets of the Arab world where um, there are more shared language um, and shared beliefs or even geographically. So you'll have you know, Lebanon, uh, Jordan, um, you have, um, yeah, Lebanon, Jordan, Palestine, and Syria. You know, there's a lot of shared understandings and beliefs and the language, although there's differences, you know, dialectically, you know, they're intelligible. And then, um, you know, Sudan is an Arab country, mm. Egypt, right? So mm. in, in the, the north of Africa, you have, you know, some Arab countries as well. So the Arab world is, is truly diverse in and of itself. Um, so you'll find that, um, and it's interesting because sometimes I'll be, you know, with, uh, friends and they'll have a friend who's, um, Moroccan and when he speaks Arabic, I can't 
I can't get it. And I, I'm sure that I could if I, if my Arabic was, you know, fluent and I had a, a true, you know, grasp on the Arabic language and I was able to kind of uh, work with those things, but, but I can't. And if, uh, you know, my other friend who is um, Jordanian, probably I can understand it. So it's just interesting mm. how, you know, yeah, there's, there's a lot of diversity in and within the Arab world in and of itself. Zigzag is an autism therapy management platform. At its core, Zigzag seamlessly allows management of programs, adding, editing, changing long-term and short-term objectives on the go. Zigzag makes data collection super easy for therapists on-site and automatically calculates progress, providing you with session summaries and graphs in real time. Zigzag provides you the ability to manage all of your clients, whether they be center or home-based, and work with all the various therapists and parents seamlessly. Zigzag is based in Vancouver, British Columbia, and is fully compliant with both federal and provincial privacy requirements. Book a demo now at www.zigzagkid.com forward slash product demo and get a free 30-day trial. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is refugee. So so when we're talking about the Arab world and sort of 22 Arab nations, when we say Arab, are we referring to the language? Is that what we mean by Arab? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think that uh, there is definitely that shared language dialectally, but I think that also it, it comes down to like ancestry as well. Mm. Um, so it is, yeah, super complex. And it's interesting mm. that you asked that question because, yeah, and there is a shared, I guess, um, a shared identity between those in the Arab world, but mm. um, yeah, they, they tend to speak Arabic dialectically. A lot of it is different, but it you know, comes from the same kind of root language that classical right. Arabic, um, which is the, the language of the scripture and whatnot. So, right, right, oh, really interesting. And I guess just as far as you know, and and uh, we won't sort of dive too deep into this area. I mean, I think there's been enough enough on it, um, but. It sounds like it sounds to me again, and this is again just based on my own my Canadian, you know, news com- news channel coverage or whatnot. Um, but that probably the big differences seem to be mostly, you know, at least from on on a world span, it's political, and so you know, as there, there there are some countries that have you know some you know, for lack of a better term, very very right kind of extreme sort of right kind of thinking. And there's other countries that are central centrists and others that are leftist and so on and so forth. And, and, and so you really can't, you really need to be careful as someone who's, you know, looking at this from the outside, like myself, of not sort of lumping in, you know, um, you know, the the political ideologies so that and, and start thinking that they're all the same. And I think this is where, you know, certainly in Canada, where you know, 
the Arabic culture and certainly, you know, the South Asian culture to a, maybe a lesser extent, uh, run into a lot of, you know, hate and discrimination based on sort of the political ideologies of maybe one or two of those nations, um, you know, depending on kind of where they're from. Is that fair to say? Yeah, totally. Um, and it's, yeah, it's interesting as well, because when it comes like, yeah, when it boils down to it, a lot of, um, you know, like I think when it comes to culture or religion, I think that the the actions or, you know, those really extreme views, a few kind of overshadow the, um, you know, the um, convictions or the uh, sentiments that the majority have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very, yeah, very complex. Um, totally. Uh, pieces in there, each each of which could make it big for its own <laughs> podcast episode. But uh, today we're really going to focus on on on, on autism uh, and and sort of the, the experiences of being a refugee, and particularly the experiences of being a a refugee with autistic children or adults um, in Canada, and more specifically in Alberta, which you know could be a different experience in BC. Um, uh, depending on sorts of things, um, and your the paper that we're kind of mostly talking about, um, uh, instead of sort of having you kind of you know tell me about the paper and what you found because that would just make I think essentially have you talking for the next ninety minutes or so while I turn my camera off. Uh, I'm just going to be asking. We're just going to be having a conversation and asking different questions. I think, but all of those things are kind of addressed in the thesis. Um, uh, as we kind of go along. Um, um, so I, I guess the first question is, so I, one, one thing I liked about the thesis, and we'll have we'll have a link to the thesis in the show notes uh, as and 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 if if you're able to share it, that is, uh, and hopefully you're able to share um, uh, and you let me know if you can't. Um, some of these uh, these these two kind of summary documents that you share with me, because I think those are, are the things that are going to be really consumable for folks. I know a lot of folks out there don't want to read a master's thesis because because uh, you know that's uh, that's a it's a long read uh, and yeah. and, uh, and and they're always waiting for the published article or some some other version. But um, these uh, these summaries are, are really are really nice documents that that hopefully we can share with folks. It's just a, a good essentially a really good resource uh, if you're if you're kind of getting into kind of doing this kind of work one thing i kind of i really like that you looked at you looked at um 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 what we what you what we'd expect you looked at their experiences sort of over here you know um uh, experiences finding services and diagnosis and and um and uh and uh you know and all all, all sorts of kind of culture shock pieces but another thing that you looked at, which I think might be good to kind of start with, um, is um, so the, 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 these families' experiences before they came to Canada. So their experiences with autism in sort of, well, and I suppose for these folks, in Syria. Um, maybe, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about, first, a little bit about Syria and kind of, you know, just a, a brief sort of synopsis of kind of, you know, I, I know that may be hard, but kind of what's been happening there. I mean, and uh, 
and 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 and, uh, and and why why there's been a need for um um you know families to leave that country and, and come to other countries why do we have refugees from syria in the first place totally um yeah so syria the middle middle eastern country um you know shares borders with lebanon jordan um and turkey um it it had undergone political turmoil for a while and um i guess when we're thinking about you know, syria the the majority of syrian people are muslim but not all uh there are you know different religions in syria as well and mm. um in terms of why there are um why why there are syrian refugees and what is the syrian crisis it's um a lot of i guess arab countries stabilized a lasting you know authoritarian regime um and these regimes were unpopular among citizens so um out of a desire to you know change this um there was the Arab Spring, which Syria was a part of, um, and the uprise, you know, sparked demonstrations by, um, you know, citizens across different countries. And, um, the Syrian crisis really emerged from many different, I guess, underlying factors. And based on the research that, that I did, it seems as though, um, you know, there was really one key incident that kind of sparked it, but that's not to say that that was the only thing that happened. Of course, there's a lot of, there was a lot of things happening, um, um, for for a long time before that, and uh, those things you know, include uh, you know, religious tensions. There was the proxy involvement from other na- from other nations, um, looking at you know energy rich uh, resources that Syria has, and then there's the strategic you know geographical location of Syria. So that's all kind of based on the the research that I did to kind of understand uh, why the Syrian what kind of like boiled into this Syrian crisis happening. Mm-hmm. And then there's that authoritarian regime where, um, you know, uh, individuals were protesting cruelty uh, from the government, uh, risking their lives against, you know, armed forces. And um, that specific incident, based on the research that I did was where an individual drew graffiti in opposition to the al-Assad regime um, and that was met with violent retaliation and things just kind of spiraled from there. And mm. that's where you see, uh, you know, a lot of the um, the conflict between citizens and governments and uh, different uh, you know, coalitions that uh, um, occurred. So um, that caused, you know, that, that kind of led to the Syrian crisis and then um, having the need for, you know, individuals to you know, seek asylum and, uh, be forcibly dis- displaced from from their homes. So there, there, there currently are obviously people in Syria. Um, yep. Now, are there are there like still a good number of folks in Syria that are are that support the regime, and so you know they, they're they're happy to stay there. Um, yeah, I think that's not an area that I really looked into mm. I'm, i wouldn't be i guess just kind of based on you know um diversity of sentiments that people have it wouldn't surprise me if uh, you know yeah. individuals did but i think that also a part of it goes back to you know um opportunity or um you know resources to leave um yeah. or you know yeah. maybe for some people the desire to stay you know in their home is was something that kind of over you know yeah. overshadowed the you know, the need or want to, to leave, it was, you know, that was kind of their way of life. Because w- w- when we, um, 
when I talk to you know some of the, the parents that were here, they do miss you know mm. Syria and they they miss you know the right. um, culture that they were you know the, the collectivist culture you know family community very vibrant social life so all of these things they they do miss um so i think that it's you know also hard for people to kind of let go of their homes as well yeah no i think that's an important point i was asking more uh to to and, and you kind of answered already that you know i think there, there there are folks there i think the broader question is why are there still a lot of folks there and mm-hmm. i think you know, I think definitely not having the resources to leave, you know, not feeling safe enough to leave, even though they don't feel safe there either. Um, you know, I think those are all big things. Um, and and uh, and so and so um, and I think I think you make the, the, the most important point you just made there is because I think there's sort of this assumption that. You know, as a refugee you're now in a place that's better than where you were before and everything here is better than what you had. Um, and everything there is bad and wrong and evil. Um, and certainly there are aspects of that. Uh, but as, as you, you know, so clearly stated, you know, there's a lot of folks that miss home. Um, there was a lot of things they loved about home and loved about Syria and, um, uh, the collectivist piece, which I think I want to touch on too shortly. Um, so, I think it's just important that, you know, folks don't make the assumption that, you know, you're now in Canada where everything is great and you should be happy um, just because just because of that, um, you know, they've literally ripped themselves from their families off. Many of them, their family, many, many folks have family members still there. And I imagine with, you know, the, the more recent sort of regime change again and and you know the taliban kind of taking over and 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 you know airports getting shut down and whatnot you know and communication you know and certainly we're hearing you know i know this isn't isn't the same but we're certainly hearing a lot in in iran about you know uh you know internet being sort of sort of systematically removed entirely because of all the power that has and so certainly just even knowing where their family members are now um is 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 probably a constant struggle and stress and i think that you know that piece that you mentioned about the assumption is something that's really important to you know remain cognizant of because when you think about you know and this was kind of something that i looked at um kind of superimposing this model um, onto the experiences of you know Syrian refugees throughout the results of the study, but there's a migrant resource uh, model that says you know there are a lot of resources, so there's a lot of um, there's a lot of you know personal resources, you know physical abilities, material resources, social resources like relational networks and mm. culture, all these things that individuals capitalize on when they migrate and resettle in a country. But there's also you know needs and there's demands um, and goals that they want to have fulfilled. Um, so looking at, you know, when a person, and it really depends on that individual and the kinds of resources that they come with and as well as the demands that they have. Um, but when they migrate, you know, for a lot of individuals, and it totally depends because there's a com- there's a little bit of a theme that I, you know, just kind of touched on but didn't really investigate, but um, just really depending on education level, it, that kind of informs level of, um you know, English language competency among refugees. So, you know, those who are migrating with English language competency, that's a huge resource. And when you're in, you know, um, Syria, you're 
Arab competency as a resource, but that's now a loss when you come to Canada because you may or may not have that, you know, if you don't have that English competency. Mm. So just, yeah, thinking about how it's kind of different because a lot of, you know, I guess, and the point I'm trying to make is that a lot of um, individuals, when they migrate, you know, although that there's a lot of acquisition and gains and resources, there are also a lot of loss of resources and a mm. lot of demands that need to be met um, in order for them to adapt you know, as a migrant and, and mm-hmm. thrive in society long-term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So let's kind of dive into a bit sort of uh, the, the experience, the, the experience of, 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 well, before we get into that, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about the study for context as far as sort of um, who who you interviewed like who who were the subjects tell us a little bit about the subjects themselves um you know a bit of, a bit of that story and 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 kind of how you found them and and um and uh you know and just you know a little just a little bit about them so and then we'll start talking about their experiences in Syria versus here for sure um so I was you know really um I guess I had um, the opportunity, and I was really grateful to be afforded the opportunity to um, liaison with a you know local um, agency in Calgary, Calgary, who um, and I guess um, with uh, yeah, I guess it was the agency in Calgary who um, serves a lot of you know immigrant and refugee families who who come to um, to Calgary specifically, but Alberta uh, more generally, and um, I was able to. No, connect with this agency was the Calgary Catholic Immigration um, Agency, and they were able to um, help me to recruit because they had, you know, a, they had a pool of individuals that they knew, um, you know, had children with autism and were, were Syrian refugees and, and migrated because of the Syrian crisis. So um, that's kind of how I was able to find the, the participants, as well as I was able to kind of uh, snowball through, um, you know, private practice clinicians and I had one participant who was in Edmonton as well. So hmm. um, that's kind of how I found them. So it was really, right. you know, I, I guess all the credit goes to those, those agencies because they, they helped me out with being able to do so and um, felt as though that the research was something that would be impactful for them and kind of going forward and serving more, cool. you know, uh, refugee families who came in, but uh, from, from different countries. And then in terms of the subjects themselves, the participants themselves, um, there were three, three mothers of, uh, children and, and adolescents, um, um, autistic children and adolescents, you know, who, who were Syrian refugees. Uh, mm-hmm. one, uh, mom had two kids, uh, the other two had one each and they kind of ranged in, um, their, you know, diagnostic presentation in terms of, uh, their adaptive functioning and, um, right. cognitive functioning and so on. And so, they were really kind of diverse in and of themselves because uh, they had diverse displacement experiences and Mm. um, they had um, kids of different ages. So it was able, I was able to kind of glean a lot of really good information around, you know, their experiences um, Mm. and compare and contrast that. Um, But uh, yeah, there was one mom who went from um, Syria and then briefly Egypt and then Jordan and then 
Um, there was another one who went from Syria to Lebanon. Um, and then yeah, it was, it was kind of a really neat, diverse sample, but, mm -hmm. uh, there were three moms, so I didn't really get the paternal kind of perspectives, but yeah. Interesting. So, uh, just, uh, one more kind of term sort of, uh, differentiation. Um, I think I know the difference, but what's the what what is the difference between immigrant and refugee? Are you a BCBA supervisor looking to streamline your practice, or maybe you're working towards your BCBA and need to find the right supervisor? Homehouse offers tools that make supervision so much more enjoyable for both supervisor and supervisee. For supervisors, they offer easy meeting documentation competency tracking, monthly verification forms, a built-in supervision curriculum, and so much more. For supervisees, Homehouse has a fieldwork tracker with built-in auditing, monthly verification forms, a curriculum, quizzes, and more. If you're looking for a supervisor, they even have a supervision marketplace where you can connect with BCBAs until you find your perfect match, kind of like professional dating. For more information, go to homehouse.com forward slash speak or search Homehouse on Google. The second secret word is Arab. So um, I think that when it comes to, you know, a refugee is someone who's forcibly displaced from their home, mm -hmm. um, seeking asylum because of some sort of calamity. Um, and I think that, uh, um, you know, differs from, you know, an individual who, you know, immigrates for, um, you know, um, you know, purposeful or intentful opportunity. Um, mm -hmm. and, you know, I might be my, myself getting those terms mixed up, but when it first comes, you know, when, when that first comes to my, to me, you know, a refugee is someone who's forcibly displaced and they're seeking asylum and, mm -hmm. um, their re resettlement experiences, um, kind of stem from, you know, that more or less abrupt, you know, need to leave everything behind and, right. and kind of going through this, this, uh, journey of displacement of, you know, as I mentioned before, there was the one family who went from, you know, Syria um, to Egypt and then to Jordan and then their final destination being, you know, here in Alberta. So it's kind of, I guess, that journey as well. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. So it's, it's almost like a, like, uh, it's almost like a choice sort of thing. Like refugees really don't have a choice. They got to go or, sort of, you know, for fear of their lives um, or, or their, you know, or, or massive restriction of their rights or whatnot whereas immigrants are kind of you know they've planned this out and they've they've applied and they're 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 currently probably working in educated and usually it's it tends to be more educated working folks that come to do this and that's that's what immigration seems to be about bring some skills to add to the you know whatever to add to the to the gdp or whatever the phrase is for bringing folks into 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 kind of into kind of our our, our workforce um you know and, and and like you said i mean they they you know, they buy their plane ticket and 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 fly direct and and uh you know they're not going from country to country and and um and constantly in in a state of stress i mean i i think immigration it's a whole other conversation again but i think immigration in itself could could use some yeah, you know, use some upgrading and there's still some stress involved with it. But um, the refugee piece really seems to be, you know, forced. And like you said, it's that forced displacement, which I think is a big difference. Um, and and sort of to make 
And so again, I think folks can make assumptions about people, you know, they're an immigrant. Well, then they blah, blah, blah. Well, no, they might be a refugee, which is a whole other, you know, um, 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 level of consideration. Um, so I, I really, I thought it was interesting, the, the displacement experiences. Um, 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 actually, well, before we get to that, so we've got, so, so you've got, you've got three moms, they have, they all have kids with autism, presumably they all had um, these children prior to coming to Canada, like uh, none of them yeah. came and then gave birth here and had an autistic child. So they all had experiences with their autistic children in Syria. So let's, let's, yeah. let's talk about that. Let's talk about sort of the, the, the pre- Pre kind of uh, there was a term you had. I don't know if it was, was pre displacement or just pre whatever pre migration. That was the term. Yes, pre migration. So, um, and I think this is again this speaks to kind of my initial kind of commentary when we started about sort of you know comparing you know Ukraine to here um, now and, and and I know there's. And I know, I know in Ukraine again. It's and, I'm, and this isn't the point of the conversation to compare. But I know in Ukraine it wasn't all sort of, you know, um, butterflies and roses. It's still, uh, you know, uh, autism intervention, as I understand, was still a relatively new thing in the Ukraine. But it was, and it was, I think it was only available to. Uh, now that I'm starting to recollect the conversation, it was only primarily available to sort of more, you know, upper class kind of wealthy folks. There was no sort of funding models in place. So they weren't sort of super ahead of the game. But, you know, there was, um, there were services available of some sort. Um, uh, what, what is, what, what, what was sort of from, from, from your research, um, the experiences of these mothers um, um, in Syria, both in terms of sort of, you know, um, you know, getting diagnosis and the type of services there that were available, but also, um, um, you know, what was what sort of the perception of autism in Syria in general, and maybe how did that affect these families? Well, that's really those are that's a really good question. Um, so I think that um, my mind's going to a million different places sure. right now. Um, because of you know that's it's a, it's a big question I think I guess to I guess break it down for myself um, mm -hmm. with in terms of the experiences getting diagnoses um, you know families um, felt as though it was you know something that happened later on in the the, the child's life and uh, for specifically for the the mom who had two children the um, the second child you know received the um, diagnosis a lot earlier, but that was because of her, you know, expertise as a mom at that point, because her first, her firstborn right. had a, uh, an autism diagnosis. So, um, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's less recognized in terms of, um, you know, early diagnosis and, um, through the research, you know, that I had, uh, conducted based on just the state of, um, you know, the, mental health resources and the understanding of knowledge, um, you know, in, in Syria and in other Middle Eastern countries is that um, there is a lack of knowledge in terms, and I'm not speaking to, you know, the, the professionals, but I'm speaking to in terms to the society and, and the parents mm. in terms of what, what is autism or uh, what does autism consist of? Because, um, and that brings me to the next point, the, the perception of autism um, and the, 
perception of autism in, I guess, from a societal perspective is, and Karen spoke to this to great length, is quite you know, negative mm. um, because the kids will um, be bullied, you know, relationally, um, physically, uh, verbally, and um, there is a, some ostracization, you know, exclusion by other individuals, and even from within, you know, the family themselves, they the parents feel as though that they themselves are socially excluded because they can't really, you know, leave the house as as readily to, um, you know, go to different places because their their child is are, are viewed so negatively. And uh, one parent spoke specifically to the fact that she she felt as though the negative perceptions of of autism um, it was something that hindered her ability to access supports and services uh, because there are huge huge gaps in that respect and. Um, it's interesting because, you know, the term for autism in many, you know, Arabic dialects is, uh, which, you know, translates roughly to he who prefers to be alone, which kind of gives, you know, insight mm. into kind of the societal perceptions of autism as a condition and how you know, society perceives the functioning of autistic individuals to be. And, um, you know, parents understood their children to be, you know, and, and in some ways, through kind of that term, they they view their child you know, from a diagnostic level to be someone who prefers to be isolated, who mm-hmm. um, they just get irritated quickly and they have limited communication with others, lack independence, have cognitive impairments. So the cognitive piece really is, um, for them, you know, characterizes uh, autism. And we know that, you know, that's you know not necessarily part of the diagnostic criteria, but for them, that's, you know, what kind of characterizes um, mm. autism as well as, you know, having intense externalizing behavior. So it's more about what you, what you see on, mm. in terms of intensity. Um, and they felt as though, and it was interesting because also parent perceptions of autism was kind of filtered through the societal perceptions because they viewed autism through a lens of difference and, uh, lack of acceptance as well. And that kind mm. of shifted for them and, uh, their understanding of autism really changed, you know, resettling in Canada, looking at it through, you know, a different lens. Um, so I guess that's a lot, that's, that's a long way of saying that it's, you know, there's a lot of inherently negative and that's not to speak to mm-hmm. you know, every, um, country group of people or, or, uh, you know, societal pocket, but overwhelmingly, you know, parents felt as though their child was not, they were not accepted. They were not serviced, uh, or supported. They themselves weren't supported. The family wasn't supported just because of, um, you know, autism being viewed as something that's, you know, it's, it felt as though others pitied kind of them as a parent for having an autistic child. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if, if I have a couple moments here, there's a yeah. really interesting kind of um, discussion that I had with one of the families. They indicated that, um, you know, there's that notion of disabilism, uh, and that really kind of permeated their experiences as parents because when it came to their you know, autistic individuals, they felt as though others pitied the children or viewed them as burdens, uh, to, mm-hmm. to them as parents. And in fact, one person indicated that, um, and that's the, the participant that I was referring to indicated that, um, people used to say, um, to her, which means God help you, mm-hmm. um, to which she would respond. You know, which means or thank god so her response you know would be and and she spoke to this she said i i didn't really appreciate when people said this to me because it felt as though they were pitying me saying mm-hmm. that my child is burdened but 
in reality, I'm grateful for kind of the condition of my children. And I'm happy, you know, that, you know, leaving and fleeing from um, Syria, that they have their limbs intact, they have, you know, their life intact and all of these things. So she was kind of viewing it through that positive lens. And um, yeah, it, it's really interesting how hmm. that, I guess, difference between the parental perceptions and societal perceptions. Of, yeah, 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 yeah. I really like that. The, the, you know, the, the society saying, you need help from God, you know, like, uh, to, to sort of, you know, make your life better. And, and, and the parents have that opposite of, of, of gratitude to God for giving me this child. Um, and I'm just happy he's, you know, he's intact and, uh, and, 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 and part of my family that, and, and that, I guess that speaks to, and again, again, that's just these, these three parents perspectives. Um, I, I would guess that there's probably some families as there are in sort of any culture that, you know, do consider the entire experience, you know, a, you know, uh, you know, a punishment um, and maybe even a punishment from God or whatever sort of religious deity they, they observe. Um, um, uh, but it was great that great to hear for these folks that that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so And again, you know, not looking for specific dates here, but just in terms of sort of the regime as it is now, uh, I guess, like, how, where, where where do folks get diagnoses in Syria? Like, how how are they even obtained? Like, like, and is that even a? And I don't know if you know you would even know the answer, but you know, it, like, is that still happening? Can parents still get diagnoses considering the the regime as it is and that sort of thing? Um, I think that in terms of if, you know, the diagnoses are still occurring, I can only make assumptions on, on sure. that front. That was yeah. an aspect, but I, I'd assume so, but, um, there is definitely kind of, you know, once the Syrian crisis occurred, a lot of research, research talks about how, um, you know, there was already limited kind of, um, there are already limited mental health resources mm-hmm. and then that kind of dwindled you know with this as you might imagine with mm-hmm. you know the Syrian crisis mm-hmm. and, and everything else going on um the uh there, there is considered to be a, you know a lack of resources and professionals generally mm-hmm. to diagnose autism in their countries um they tended to you know they would go to um they would go to doctors and i don't think that the research really specified what kind of whether it was a psychologist or a pediatrician, mm, but mm. Uh, they would they would get those diagnoses from you know right. a um, doctor with the relevant credentials, but still lower rates of diagnosis just as mm. a product of um, there being a lack of resources and mm. knowledge, you know, and especially among the you know parents themselves not knowing what to look for exactly mm. in in their kids and um, there also being these social stigmas of, you know, shame. Um, and I know that one article spoke to a resistance to help seeking because of those stigmas as well. Um, generally, I, yeah, they would access those, those 
the diagnosis from you know, relevant professionals. So they've got their diagnosis. Were there any services available in Syria, or and and what what, what did that look like for those folks? Mm-hmm. Um, specifically with regards to the participants, or yeah, uh, with, with the with the folks you talked to, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um. So for one, um, and I guess I guess generally, um, the harems um, felt as though access to supports would have had to come out of pocket. So access to good support would have had to come out of pocket. Um, mm-hmm. It's more less less government funding. I guess funneled into uh, supports and services. You know. For autistic kids or kids with developmental, you know, conditions in general, um, and then for you know one of the families, uh, she, the one with, with with two kids, her eldest was able to be enrolled in a um, private school that wasn't necessarily, and they had to pay, they had to pay money for this, and it wasn't necessarily specified to autism itself, mm-hmm. um, but. It was different from the mainstream education system, so she was able to um, get act or get support for the, for the child there. But by the time I guess she found or identified, you know, that resource, and then um, the kid was only there for a year, and then before the school was destroyed because the Syrian crisis had had happened, so the, the school was completely destroyed, and mm. um, that aspect of you know that that formal service was no longer an option for them. And there weren't many options to begin with. So that was kind of a devastating experience. And then mm-hmm. also not having you know, the feelings of support from you know people in the community because um, she couldn't really, you know, have anybody to like provide respite for her, for example, so she could take a break because it was not something that was, you know, as accepted. And then for another uh, family, again, you know, private, privately accessed resources or services, um, the her uh, child got some speech language therapy and went to a center um, for kids with developmental conditions. And she indicated that the quality of service that she received there wasn't kind of where she wanted it to be because um, it wasn't specialized to kind of his needs. So it was more, mm. she talked about it was more of them like doing crafts and stuff. So it was more kind of a place to kind of go and do um, activities rather than receive um, supports that might be enriching with regards to, you know, the behavioral presentation that or the um, kind of learning needs that they uh, required. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other um, family, she didn't have any access for her, she not much access for her kid. And then once mm-hmm. she kind of was going through her displacement experience, she recalled that um, she wanted to put her son in school. But it was either the mainstream education system, which he wasn't really able to mm-hmm. um, be a part of because of the nature of his needs, or it was um, a center where the kids there were, um, had more complex needs in terms of their adaptive functioning, and he just didn't fit in in either kind of... So there was really one end of the spectrum or the other, and he didn't really fit in mm-hmm. in either one. So he just didn't, he didn't go to school right. because that was just kind of the... She didn't really have much of a choice in that respect, so she was really grateful for you know the school system here for her son. Yeah, what I mean, what would have been sort of her their outlook like if they if they hadn't left Syria, you know, and and it was you know safe 
to be there or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of what ifs, but um, you know, what what's generally like the lifespan experience like living in Syria, or what was it like maybe pre pre crisis um, as far as sort of you know into adulthood and whatnot and like. Uh, you know, and did, what did I mean? Obviously, they they didn't have that experience themselves, but I imagine they've had interactions with folks, or you've had interactions with other folks that are now here, immigrated and whatnot. Um, I, I I presume not much. Like uh, you know, these folks probably just stay at home for the rest of their lives. Um, like, are there institutions and that sort of thing in Syria? Or I think there are institutions, and as I mentioned, there's kind of centers uh, to service. Um, you know, individuals with developmental conditions, particularly right. those that are more complex in terms of, you know, the adaptive functioning and, and whatnot. Um, I think that it's interesting that you mentioned that piece about, you know, staying um, at home because that's kind of a reality for a lot of individuals in Middle Eastern countries, regardless because of that mm. social stigma and the pressure to not you know, be seen um, or to hide your child, as mm. you know, some of the participants said. So, mm. um I presume that there's a, you know, just based on the nature of those experiences, there's a lot of missed opportunities for, you know, mm-hmm. enriching you know, the, the developmental outcomes um, or learning experiences. And that kind of you know, will also bleed into adulthood as well. Hmm. Interesting. We'll talk a little bit about kind of, you know, the experience I guess I guess you'd call it kind of the displacement experience, um, you know, uh, of of actually leaving Syria and 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 coming here. Um, um, we talk a lot about, you know, again, I mentioned it before about sort of being trauma informed here. Typically, when we talk about, you know, children that are sort of born and raised in North America, um, you know, we're talking about. Um, we're talking mostly about traumas related to, you know, um, um, abuse, neglect, um, 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 well, those sort of the big ones that, you know, I think, uh, you know, certainly, you know, being over from the extremes of sort of parents locking their kids in the basement for their entire lives or, um, and these are true stories. I've heard some of these myself um, to, you know, just, uh, you know, a lot of physical abuse, sexual abuse. Um, certainly we know that folks with intellectual disabilities are, have a much higher risk of these kinds of things, especially when they get into sort of care environments and whatnot. And so we really look at kind of, you know, trauma-informed solutions based on our understanding of sort of those different sorts of uh, adverse childhood experiences, as they call them. Um, and often when we're when we're getting educated educated on trauma, we hear about sort of, and I think there, there's a term for it, but basically there's the there's the trauma of like you know a natural disaster or war. And then there's this sort of contextual kind of, you know, family situational kinds of traumas. There's other terms for those. Um, And we skip the war natural disaster thing because those things don't happen here. And we learn about this other side. So I wouldn't mind just talking a little bit about sort of that, 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 that sort of um, uh, crisis, you know, experience, uh, what, what that was like for these, for these families and these children and, and these children, what, what did, what did you sort of learn about, learn, you know, from, from 
from from from from these folks anyway uh, at least about sort of what that was like what was it like to go leave surrey surrey leave it's my, it's my bc sort of um, <laughs> bias coming in leave syria go to egypt go to jordan go to another country um uh, you know what the, what you know and even just before that like what was the like experiencing you know essentially war um in syria and 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 what kind of effects did that have on these kids and these families that's a really good question um and i agree with a lot of what you said there and it's interesting because um as we might imagine you know syrian crisis was, was a disruptive experience you know for the parents it impacts their uh resettlement experience in terms of you know and I mentioned, you know, that with that school being destroyed in Syria, that impacts, and that's a really good example of how it impacts their ability to access the supports and services that exist. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, and it impacts the resettlement experience in terms of, you know, perceptions of their child having more diagnostic complexities and there being residual impacts of the war that need to be addressed. And one of the really, you know, memorable things that a parent said to me through the interviews that really hit home to me was that, you know, when, when clinicians are, cons- you know, thinking about or considering working with you know, my my son, they need to take into consideration that yes, you no, know, autism is part of you know his identity, but also is being a refugee because of, you know, the trauma and the really, you know, she met she said it like in, in her words, she the atrocities that he, you know, saw and experienced and all of these things that really have ongoing impacts. And she said that, um, and I found when I was doing research, um, that, um, and if I can remember the quote here, but it said, There is a lack of diversity when it comes to educational material depicting black children in the field of applied behavior analysis. Human expressions gives black and brown children realistic and detailed images of kids who look like them, modeling everyday skills that may be difficult for them to communicate or express. At Human Expressions, the benefits of representation for black and brown kids in educational curricula are clear. Increased self-esteem, reducing stereotypes, and increased validation and support. To learn more, go to www.humanexpressions.org. That's human, H-U-E-M-A-N, expressions.org. One article said that, you know, individuals with autism are among the most vulnerable populations during a crisis, uh, such as war, and are most easily forgotten. Um, mm-hmm. And parents, you know, do agree with that sentiment. And um, I found is, you know, through some of their indications that they they said that um, the traumatic you know, symptoms in their child were due to those, you know, impacts of war and that their diagnostic presentation um, was more pronounced or they would have exacerbated, you know, uh, behavioral expressions as a result of under- undergoing trauma, they might, you know, acquire more externalizing or internalizing uh, symptoms as a result. They, um, you know, there was one parent who indicated that her you know, child has a lot more night terrors um, still because of, you know, what he saw um, in Syria. Right. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, compiling hardships associated with coming from conflict, um, you know, so witnessing those war-related atrocities, lingering fears that the um, both the parents and the, the children have, as well as the whole family, abrupt and forced displacement. You know, changes in routine can be traumatizing in a lot of ways sometimes. Mm. And um, the novelty of a new culture and society, these are all described as compiling stressors that negatively impact the children. And 
you know, due to these experiences with conflict, um, parents indicates that both being a, um, both being a, um, refugee and yet, as I mentioned, as an, an autistic are part of their identity and that those war related adversities permeate into their daily life. Um, so they felt as both of the, as though both of those things should be treated in the child holistically. So as you mentioned, you know, taking that trauma informed care, um, because of both, you know, the experiences that they had with war and displacement and crisis, as well as their needs being like having autism, as well as um, needing to adequately address, you know, a lot of those missed opportunities for servicing that, you know, a lot of children may or may, may or may not have, you know, experienced as well. So there's really a lot going on there in terms of um, the impacts of the Syrian crisis on um, families and individuals with, um, or sorry, families of individuals with autism as well as, you know, those individuals themselves. And there's one more thought that I have. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of, it, it's interesting because one of the articles, and this kind of speaks more to the, the research behind the study rather than the experience of the um, parents themselves, but one of them, one of the articles talked about how as a feature of, you know, being displaced or undergoing um, a, a crisis, there's a lot of unmet basic needs mm. that parents, families as well, but parents who, if they don't have, you know, they're, they're trying to satisfy these basic needs. And um, so they're unable to, you know, provide the attention or care that their child with, who has a developmental disability requires. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and that can lead to kind of a trickle down effect in terms of, you know, the mental health needs that the parent have kind of permeating to to the children and leading to more exacerbated behavioral presentations as well, because the parents aren't able to best, you know, provide care to the child just because there's, you know, they don't have, you know, the food or the clothing or the water, then that's kind of what comes first in that, that situation. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's so many little pieces you can sort of see on, on that sort of trauma train that these folks are riding. And, and I, I just think about sort of, you know the work we do with autistic folks and and uh you know to sort of you know help with you know just like one of those pieces for example you know uh a, a lot of kids you know a lot of these a lot of our kids don't want to you know moving is hard like moving from one one house to another house in, in even in the same neighborhood changing schools going on an airplane you know is 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 a you know, often a, a, even going into the airport is a is a crazy traumatic experience for folks and requires a lot of, you know, shaping and and teaching and, and uh, you know, desensitization and whatnot. And these kids and families are, are and then and then we go to some of your, you know, your points about sort of basic needs. And that really makes me think of sort of, you know, and I know this isn't what's happening, but it sort of the symptoms of, of neglect and whatnot. You know, it's essentially neglect, but it's not neglect by the parents. It's neglect by, you know, the system, uh, the systems that are in place in, in sort of each country that they're traveling through or whatnot, uh, or just even you know, trying to, you know, get out of that country and in, in some sort of 
safe way. And and often I, I imagine a lot of 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 the sort of relocation sort of processes are 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 often pretty fast paced and you know we need you on that boat now or we need you on this plane now or on this bus now or in this line now or you know everything is right now in the moment because of you know all, all the sort of crisis pieces and again we know a, a lot of the kids that we work with don't do well with that you know in a in even in a very kind of calm environment so i'm just imagining these folks are going through all those things um you know often and and for those for those those autistic children often it's the first time they've experienced a plane it's the first time they've experienced a boat it's the first time they've experienced maybe even leaving their home and and going down the street let alone you know not not to mention all of the sort of you know uh, you know like you said seeing your school blow up uh, you know missiles in the air and all the sorts of you know atrocities of war and and, and viewing all that and we talk we often talk a lot about you know uh, veterans and PTSD and 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 the work we do to kind of treat that and these kids are experiencing all those things you know uh, imagine imagine many of these families were watched their own their neighbors and friends die um you know and kids watching their friends die you know or or not make it or whatever like it's just unimaginable sorts of levels of trauma um um that that are are are, are kind of kind of being experienced I, i'm curious sort of what well number one what 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 were the family's sort of you know sort of perceptions of that about trying you know about trying to you know support their child um, through that process um and and kind of starting to move over to the refugees now being in Canada and being in Alberta, um, 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 as we start to think, think about sort of, you know, I think we've got a pretty good basis now of 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 the trauma that that, that these kids have experienced, um, um, and now now you know, you know, I think I, I definitely want some take homes to be, and, and we've still got quite a bit of time to chat but I, I want some take-homes to be you know you know what can folks be considering and doing you know to sort of better better support these folks so just thinking about that that whole like I just I just try to like I I don't know like if it were me going through all of that you know with no children I know I would right now be having night nightmares and stressors and be afraid of, you know, loud noises and, 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 and probably need a, a lot of therapy um, in order to sort of, you know, cope with that experience. Um, and that's me with my, you know, um, you know, with having more ability to sort of, you know, recognize and understand that. So I'm just curious sort of what the, the sort of narrative experiences of these parents were of, of, of the actual trauma and, and, and their perceptions of, of what maybe their children sort of felt and experienced and, and, and still are experiencing. Totally. Um, so I think that there's a lot of, you know, working pieces there. And I think, you know, to, to start, um, in terms of, you know, some of the experiences that the parents, you know, had in both for themselves and for their 
parents, I remember, you know, talking about you know, there's the, there's the night terrors for the one boy. Um, but also, um, one family felt as though, you know, throughout their displacement experience, as well as you know, migration, they had, um, a really intense anxiety and they described that their trauma, as they described it, you know, lessened with times in, in time and sorry, it lessened with time in terms of, you know, increased safety and comfort and mm. trusting the system. Um, because they felt as though in a lot of those, you know, with their specific displacement experiences, there was a lot of distrust toward authority figures. So that was something also to get used to here is that, you know, um, a lot of the time, um, you know, in, in Alberta, you know, if you're interacting with a police officer, they t tend to have your best interests in mind. Whereas, you know, based on the pre-migration experiences, that wasn't always the case for them. So, um, but I guess more specifically, with regards to the trauma experiences, they talked a lot about the atrocities, the violence, and um, the really, and they, they, they described them as horrible experiences in terms of um, all of what of which what, what you described. Um, but beyond that, they didn't really dive too much into it. And, I was, and when I was doing the, um, beyond, I guess, what I was, I've discussed so far in terms of their specific traumas and experiences with trauma, I was very careful during my interview to make sure that I didn't inquire too much about that, just to make sure that, you know, the interview didn't become um, something that was triggering for them. So that mm. was kind of more to up to the right. participant themselves to kind of dive into um, if they wanted to to speak to those things. And some of them did to some detail, but a lot of them didn't. And I remember one participant even really limiting the um, discussions with regard to her specific displacement, displacement experience. So I talked about how, you know, mm -hmm. that, that one family migrated from, um, um, Egypt to Jordan and then to Canada, but there was one participant who didn't really want to dive into that too much. And mm. so I was very res kind of respectful to make sure that I wasn't yes. making the interview a, um, discussion about their traumas and what kind of traumas they experienced and very descriptive. And it was more about kind of the supports that they, you know, tried to access for their kids or the supports that they perceived to um, have that were positive or beneficial for their children. And um, that kind of brings me to your, your, your next point there. Actually, before I, I get there, it was interesting too, because this um, relates to kind of one of the um, articles that I read. And I know that you spoke to this a little bit at the beginning of you know, our conversation here, but that um, trauma-informed care, you, 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 mentioned it as, you know, it being a little bit of a, of a buzzword and being careful with kind of using that term. And yep. I did some research and I don't want to, you know, say that this is the case for everyone or that these, this is the case specifically for the participants because this isn't really something that they got into. But um, some research, you know, does talk about how, um, you know, undoubtedly, you know, many refugees may have experienced, you know, potentially traumatic, traumatic experiences during the pre-migration, you know, leading to mental health concerns and conditions. But, um there's also the post-migration stressors, stressors that are, you know, salient and contributing mm. to mental health concerns. And, mm -hmm. um, this specific article talked about how it's important for practitioners not to overemphasize the trauma narrative with, you know, refugees, because a lot of, you know, Western models may emphasize, you know, those trauma labels, which may be incompatible with, um, some of the, you know, the resilience that refugee populations feel as though they have, because mm. in this article specifically, uh, refugees indicated that, yes, we totally endorse that we've, you know, experienced traumatizing experiences, but they reject kind of the notion that that trauma overshadows 
their resilience and debilitates them from being a contributing mm. member to society. Um, so it's kind of in that way, it was interesting to really kind of, that was kind of something that I kind of really took in because it's, I was like, okay, well, it's really kind of important to not overextend, you know, that traditional, you know, um, Western mental health you know, model, um, you know, that is dynamically changing, but viewing, you know, refugees through a deficit or pathology, um, but, you know, exploring, you know, that trauma and that individual basis to really see what, you know, that um, means to them. And that kind of leads to, you know, my next point being is that like, the refugee, you know, families that I've worked with, um, it's interesting because a lot of them will say, well, you know, my child was too young to know that they experienced the trauma. So they don't mm. have trauma and kind of very, being a little bit more closed off with those experiences yeah. as well. Just, you know, based on kind of the, the their culture and, you know, their, their understanding of the resilience that they want, you know, to kind of have in, in that situation. And, um, so that's kind of, yeah, that piece there. And in terms of, you know, the parents trying to support their, children um you know coming from syria um and gaining you know or accessing you know um diagnoses for their children and trying to find suitable um placements for their their kids to to learn and acquire resources sometimes hiring private professionals to come to the home uh, but all of those things are kind of you know, privately funded by the family themselves so that's not really a possibility for a lot of families to do so mm-hmm. um they're doing doing their best with supporting their children and as they're you know being displaced from country to country trying to access those similar resources for the children or trying to find um you know uh, some services in an already kind of scarce environment and then you know coming to canada that's a i guess we can we can chat about that in a little bit here because that's a whole different kind of um experience in terms of their perceptions of the supports and services but um generally very they were able to kind of access those things for their kids here and they felt as though, um, you know, there was one participant specifically who said, and uh, this was shared um, in terms of the sentiments across other participants, but they were, um, one participant said that it was a, the dream of hers was to come to Canada because of the opportunity that it all kind of had for, um, or so she kind of heard of, you know, when she was in um, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, she talked about mm. how she heard about the opportunities that Canada has for, you know, autistic children. And that was a dream of hers to migrate here mm, interesting yeah awesome uh, really good points there i think first off uh you know speaking about the trauma informed bit uh i think what you were doing right there in your interviewing practice was being super trauma informed by not forcing discussion of said trauma um you know and and uh, and and that's the kind of message i i want to get out to folks is that i just want folks to understand it's quite likely, you know, if you're working with, uh, you know, uh, a refugee family from, you know, one of these kind, and from any of these sort of war-torn nations, doesn't have to be Syria, doesn't have to be whatever, that that, you know, that they've experienced all these sorts of things. That doesn't mean these families need to discuss those things. And in fact, totally. you're, in fact, you, you, you know, we, there, there's a lot about sort of secondary and re-traumatization, you know, based on discussion, but on, uh, of, of sort of reflecting on those things. And, and there are, you know, and we'll, as we start to talk about Canada there, I mean, there are services 
you know, that we know, like obviously there are, there are, you know, psychologists, psych psychiatric and psychological services and treatments available for trauma that can be addressed, and, you know, in, in that regard, if, if, if families sort of choose to kind of go that direction. So, you know, absolutely just sort of, you know, respecting those pieces. But I think the other big message though, which I think, you know, and again, because of the media coverage, I think we're seeing a lot of this in in the Ukraine is this idea of resiliency, um, you know, uh, you know, and you know the the President Zelensky is sort of you know, you know the 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 epitome of kind of resiliency and standing his ground and 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 you know and and you know and, and sort of being on the ground and never never saying, you know, never saying you know give, never never admitting defeat or giving up in in any kind of way, and and that seems to resonate you know with you know. Uh, a lot of the people there and and i imagine it's you know you know it it's it, it's no different um in 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 syria in that um you know it's not like this was uh it's not like an earthquake you know i think that's the difference between sort of a natural disaster and and sort of a you know a a a, a conflict um is that with a natural disaster it just hits boom you know there's no prep, prep, prep prepping for it and usually it's over and then you're just sort of picking up the pieces and, you know, you're going to you're you're going to talk about that trauma, that fear and whatnot. But with war, you know, um, it, it does sound like the Syrian sort of, you know, um, uh, what's what's the right term? Not, not not the crisis, but sort of just the, I suppose just the general kind of upheaval in Syria has been happening for quite a long time. Um, and, and certainly in Arabic countries, and you referred to the Arab Spring and whatnot, um, you know, it's been sort of a. An on for many of these folks a lifetime of experience um and so it 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 makes sense that there'd be resiliency that would build up um and but you can make you can certainly make some inappropriate assumptions if you don't recognize that that you know that these folks are you know are are well essentially less than um um with that so i think that resiliency piece is 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 super important and really something um you know that You know, we, we, well, it's a strength, you know, it's a strength in these families and it's probably a strength in these children on some level, because imagine, especially the adolescent kids um, who would have, you know, had multiple years of sort of, um, you know, experiencing a lot of these events. Um, they've also probably built some resilience and having their, their parents or their moms, you know, as models for that and modeling that resiliency is sort of a, a kind of a back and forth thing. And so I think, uh, you know, you know, you know, if, if there's one silver lining to all of this, it's it's that resiliency. I totally agree. And also kind of that motivation to kind of, you know, that motivation and specifically for these families to kind of access supports and services that mm -hmm. lead to the betterment of their child's functioning as well as their family from a more holistic sense as well. Yeah, absolutely. And really cool that 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 the mom sort of had the foresight to know that sort of, you know, you know, I, I want to go to this country because there there are there are more services available. I mean, like I imagine refugees from Syria have gone to countries all over the world. Um, and and something we know, which is, you know, as I sort of referenced a bit with Ukraine, 
you know, even, you know, many European countries don't have a lot of sort of infrastructure in, in place for supporting, you know, uh, autistic kids and whatnot. It, it, North America seems to have, you know, you know, um, uh, you know, sort of had, had the most sort of, you know, I think we're starting to see, you know, may, maybe a better sort of description would be sort of, you know, colonial countries seem to have more of a, you know, more services available because we hear Australia, New Zealand, and you know, the UK and whatnot all seem to have some pretty good support pieces in, in place. But I don't know that one, uh, you know, one would want to send their their family to, you know, um, you know, some a random sort of European country where there might not be a whole lot going on. Then, then again, they might also might not want to go to Saskatchewan, where you know, I know at least you know, and again, don't I know Saskatchewan's a, a wonderful place and there's some great behavior analysts there, but there aren't that many. You know, and so depending on where you're even looking for services, you know, yeah, you know that that's important. So let's talk about uh, the 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 folks being in Canada now, um, and 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 sort of what uh, what what that experience has been like for them. Um, um, I guess you know, uh, how you know, how do they how yeah how do they view the supports and services available here? Um, 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 as it sort of compares to there, I mean, you know, probably the one mom, you know, probably had who 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 knew services were better here, probably has had some different experiences compared to maybe the others who didn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's totally interesting, and I think you made a really good point there, and I find it interesting because, um, you know, when I was um, creating and asking my interview questions. My interview questions weren't geared toward, uh, you know, comparing the supports and services in, uh, you know, Syria or other countries to Canada. But right. it was interesting because that kind of naturally came out of it. Each one of the parents um, ended up describing their experiences with supports and services here through kind of comparing and contrasting what they um, did and did not receive uh, throughout their pre-migration and displacement mm -hmm. experiences. Mm -hmm. So um, that was really interesting and. They overwhelmingly, I guess, as a um, general statement, they were grateful for it. Um, they, the supports and services that Syrian refugee parents of autistic children received for their children was for this population, and it was unique because it was among one of the top reasons why they were grateful for resettling. Um, there's a lot of shared, I guess, um, in terms of there's there's been other you know articles that looked at Syrian refugees. And their experiences with uh, resettling in Canada, and there's a lot of kind of shared um, experiences in terms of appreciation and tensions between um, you know being grateful to come to Canada as well as you know the barriers that they experience uh, you know as part of their post-migration uh, resettlement experience. But kind of the unique thing was that among one of the top reasons was uh, for being grateful was the fact that they had now support services and benefits. Uh, from the government for both themselves and for uh, specifically more so their, their children. And uh, parents felt as though their children were more content in Canada as well, uh, that they were benefited from the servicing and they thrived more with the supports and services available to them, mm -hmm. uh, which led to overall increased happiness at the level of the entire family. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were generally you know, satisfied and appreciative for the supports and services available for them. They viewed Canada as beneficial for their child's edu education and development. Um, and, uh, although there were, you know, suggestions for more, and I, I spoke to this a little bit before, but there was the, um, there's two families who indicated that they would love to see more servicing from 
you know, practitioners um, with regards to being sensitive to both, you know, their child's identity as a refugee and as an autistic individual. So um, that was one area that parents felt as though they would like to see more, um, um, I guess, more attention focused in terms of, you know, how to emphasize working with, with their children, as well as um, parents spoke to wanting more vocational training opportunities for their kids and more uh, specialized programming opportunities or, you know, knowledge um, of what programs that do exist. So I guess that really speaks to the, how as um, they migrate, you know, and adapt to Canada, there still is a lot of need for making refugees aware of, of what is available and what they might be eligible for in terms of their um, in terms of their um, you know their child and what they might receive um, because they're you know despite being overwhelmingly supportive you know I did ask about well you know if um, you could have you know a parent or sorry a, a service provider come into the home and work with you what's something that you know you would tell them that you need so mm. I know I know that all of these things are you know really good but what is something that you feel is you know is missing for you mm. and those were kind of the, the pieces that they felt was the, you know, focusing on the, the um, or, or being sensitive to the traumas that their children experienced and servicing those uh, where, you know, appropriate and necessary um, and more knowledge of what is available because they felt as though they didn't really, because of, you know, language uh, barriers, they weren't able to really communicate with professionals um, and, and, and interact with them uh, in the same way to understand really the nature of their child's functioning and what is available to them or what, um, you know, supports and services they should further seek, as well as vocational opportunities, because one of the most important things to some of these families was that their child would become a contributing you know, member of society. Mm, mm, mm. And what about a couple of things? So, what wondering about sort of um, if you touched at all on sort of the the the, the mothers. The, own experiences as far as um, supports for them. Uh, did, what was what was that like? So the parents themselves were also, you know, um, not just for the sports and services, but, but we were grateful for appreciative and thankful. Um, a lot of them, you know, that term I mentioned earlier would say, alhamdulillah, meaning, you know, they were thankful to God for resettling in Canada. They viewed it as, you know, faded for them or as a blessing. Um, because it alleviated a lot of the hardships that they had as parents um, and had previously experienced throughout their pre-migration. And uh, it allowed for more opportunity for growth in their family. Parents felt as though uh, they were able to cultivate, you know, uh, stronger parent-child relationships. They were more of a unit um, um, at the level of their nuclear, nuclear family. And parents also you know, indicated that their children, you know, siblings of the autistic um, kids were also happier. Um, so, that that was interesting, and it really a lot of the experiences, you know, here um, echoed previous studies because they viewed Canada safe as stable um, and having more opportunity for themselves. But on the same kind of token, there were also, um, despite having you know all of the, these positive sentiments and attributions to you know uh, betterment of life and quality of supports and um, and all of those things, they were there were some barriers. To resettling as well, you know, the, the social isolation and lacking social support, um, you know, 
specifically, you know, here in, in Calgary, it's it's a huge city. So if you don't have a car, it's tough to get around. So there are barriers to transportation, mm-hmm. getting to appointments, um, adjustment to the weather was a stressor for a lot of these families as well. It's so cold here. They weren't mm-hmm. used to that. Um, and gaining employment, a lot of, you know, I mentioned before, as part of that migrant resource model, there's a lot of goals that refugees have. And for one of the families, a goal was of, I guess, the family and was was the, for the husband to open a, um, a, 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 sorry, was for the husband to open a halal butcher shop. Mm. And um, he wasn't able to do so because of funds. So that kind mm. of, you know, were barriers to employment and limited language abilities, interacting with professionals. Um, but parents were able to access, you know, support specifically, um, in terms of, you know, what was provided to them by, you know, agencies or the government, um, satisfying their basic needs, help with, you know, finding a place to stay, um, financial supports, uh, as well as, you know, community supports. There's a, there's a strong, you know, specifically here in, in Calgary, there's a strong, volunteer organization that works with Syrian uh, at the time worked a lot with Syrian refugees and helping them, you know, navigate the environment. So mm. um, there were those, there were those supports as well for, for parents specifically. Cool. Um, I'm curious. I don't, I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but I know with refugees often that's a federal thing so it's a federal program that's bringing the refugees to canada um and uh i know this can sometimes well this it reminds me a bit of a conversation that i had with um with uh grant bruno uh, who's on the podcast a while back he's an indigenous uh, uh fellow with a kids on the spectrum um actually in alberta too he's uh, i think he's at the university of alberta um and he was talking about uh, how um you know a lot of the sort of you know services for indigenous peoples you know um are are federal you know and and, and federally supported and and so that made that can, could could create some barriers in terms of, you know, uh, autism services because they're provincial. Um, and I was wondering if if refugees sort of have have to deal with that as well. In that sort of, you know, initially they're all the funding for their supports. And I maybe I'm just making a lot of assumptions here. I know very little about refugees. Um, seems to be federal. Um, was it a, sort of a long road for them to sort of, you know, and I don't even, to be honest, I don't even know what sort of funding for autism services is like in Alberta anyway. Um, um, but was it, I, I, I understand it's pretty good in Alberta, I think. In fact, I think in some ways it might even be, you know, uh, better than BC uh, in terms of, I think, because they have sort of a, a a large amount of services throughout sort of beyond being over six beyond under six um whereas it's it seems to be less here in some ways anyway um has was 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 that a barrier for these families and and uh, and 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 kind of how to and and if so how, how is that navigated is that just through these refugee sort of agencies maybe mm-hmm. um so i guess Talking a little bit about kind of the federal versus provincial um, funding programs that you know service you know refugees and mm. autism and how um, 
these kind of two things interact and whether or not it was a barrier kind of um, being a refugee and gaining autism supports or vice versa. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. Um, so I know that as part of their journey, um, and it was interesting because, you know, all of, as part of the eligibility criteria, um, each one of the parents had to have, you know, their children in Syria and flee because of the crisis. So it was looking at kind of that, that, uh, pre-migration experience um, with autism um, to the post-migration, you know, having that, having an autistic child and what it looked like from, from, uh, from Syria to, to Canada. So um, parents didn't speak too much about kind of the, I know that they access, they got supports for being you know, a refugee, mm-hmm. um, but on the same front, they also got uh, supports for their autistic child. And the way that that happened, the, the journey was through I guess the, the liaison was made through um, the agency here where you know, families who were identified as having you know, an autistic child or children uh, were taken to um, a medical clinic that specifically works with um, a lot of refugee populations. And through kind of um, making that connection, they were later then able to learn about, you know, different um applications that they would need to apply for to get services, you know, from at the, at the provincial level from the government. And a lot of these you know, families were able to get into, you know, specialized programs and um, or, or they were able to get into programs that were more um, geared toward working with their autistic children in school. But as well, they were able to get you know, in, ho- in home support from the government uh, through the funding as well. So um, I think the biggest barrier for these families was knowing exactly what was available, how to apply for it, and who to talk to to apply for it, and exactly what it entails. Because I remember um, at the time speaking to one of the families um, during my member checking um, um, stage of the uh, research process, uh, and she indicated to me that her kid was getting you know, closer to adulthood. Um, can I? Can she said to me? She said, "Can you write a report for him so that way he can get." Funding from the government, and of course, that's was be, for multiple reasons, you know, ethically and you know, um, you know, in terms of like you know what I was just on so many different levels that wasn't you know it was beyond the scope and not something that mm-hmm. I was able to do. So it kind of that struck me because that kind of showed me well, she doesn't really she didn't know about what kind of avenues to go through in order to find you know that support specifically to take her to that next step so she knew Mm. that there is support there are supports available for my adult child but didn't know the steps to get there um so we were able to kind of give her some resources to you know to to take those next steps and to uh, connect with the uh, appropriate professionals but um she had no idea she was like i don't know like what to do like he's getting there and i have no idea how to make that happen for him how do i how do i get those these these services so i think that the barriers really boil down to that knowledge of what's um and the ability to or lack thereof of uh, the lack of you know communication um that they have with professionals just by by nature of their you know competency their their language competency because they're not understanding a lot of what uh professionals are saying to them if they don't speak the same language rightfully so it's it's tough to bridge those gaps um so it's it's tough because 
you know, the application processes are hard and knowing how to navigate the environment is tough um, for families because a lot of the time the onus is uh, on them to figure out how to take those next steps. And a lot of research shows that one of them, you know, one, one of the, um, there's a, it's a, it's a really kind of strength for communities to have informal information sharing groups because, you know, other parents are able to share resources with parents and that kind of facilitates resource acquisition and supports and servicing. But mm. for a lot of these families, they didn't have that opportunity. Right. Hmm. Let's talk just a little bit about, I think we've got a good grasp of sort of um, that refugee experience and, and, you know, obviously the traumas associated and, and the, the, you know, the understanding of that resiliency and whatnot. Um, I kind of want to shift gears a little bit, you know, we still may draw from your interviews here, but I think we can also draw from just your own experience working as a behavior consultant with the Arabic families and whatnot. Um, and of course, just, you know, being Arabic yourself, um, um, kind of just what are some of the experiences of, you know, of, of, of Arab families, you know, being in, in a Western country, being in Canada, you know, um, uh, we talked at the beginning sort of about how important it is to not sort of, uh, you know, you know, make broad assumptions about groups, you know, especially with, uh, you know, our media spend so much time covering the, um, the uh, negativities about negative aspects of different societies and whatnot, like even like even with even with black culture, you know, for many years, we talked, we only talked about slavery, we only talked about, you know, um, oppression in Africa and those sorts of things, which of course has now painted a picture for a lot of people that all of Africa is oppressed and, and, and there's no progress, there's no happiness, there's no, you know, um, quality of life or any of that sort of thing, which we of course know is absolutely false and that there's, you know, rich culture and certainly in Arabic countries, there's rich culture and rich history and, 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 and developments and, and those sorts of things. But, you know, as it goes, when, when folks come, come over to North America, um, you know, not just North America, but a lot of it's in North America, um, you know, it's all the bad stuff we remember and we immediately attribute it to those folks. Um, uh, so I'm curious sort of, um, you know, what that experience has been like, you know, for these families, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, and, 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 you know, both in terms of, you know, just their own lives, but certainly in terms of their, you know, uh, autistic children as well, um, as well as how that might create barriers to, you know, services, barriers to employment for the families, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, um, essentially, you know, how has, you know, stigma and, and, um, and, and kind of, and racism, you know, kind of, you know, uh, how does that play a role and, and how can, you know, clinicians, I know there's a lot of questions in here. How can clinicians feel free not to answer them all? How can clinicians, um, you know, um, you know, take this stuff into account and, 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 and provide, you know, you know, a really good kind of cultural consideration services type thing. Um, I might chat a, 
I guess, a little bit about kind of that piece about being Arab in a Western country and then kind of mm-hmm. moving um, into kind of the, uh, it was interesting because, you know, that Canadian perception of, you know, Syrian refugees and how that interacts as well as the stigmas and then some take-homes uh, in terms of, you know, what are some good things to consider? So yeah. um, it's interesting because, yeah, we, t- we talked a little bit about how, you know, you know, Arabs kind of come from many different countries. They they have kind of a really diverse, um, um, you know, national, political, and religious backgrounds. Um, uh, they're likely to have, you know, an, an, an ethnic self-concept associated with their ethnicity, their geographical origins, religious underpinnings. But it's interesting because, uh, you know, the research suggests that Arab individuals are, you know, often confronted by negative biases, you know, directed towards them as being, you know, more of a monolithic or undefined differentiated entity um and a lot of the time some of these negative biases kind of are with regards to you know them being violent or um you know having a lot of you know violent practices or yes. being um really um preoccupied with you know harm or vindictiveness and all of these things kind of mm. are, these are a lot of you know, negative biases toward um Arabs, and that, in a lot of ways, relates to Canadian perceptions of um, Syrian refugees. Because you know, I think that some people definitely view you know refugees, not just Syrian refugees, but refugees as kind of a fringe individuals. Mm. Um, because you know, based on an analysis you know, of Canadian media coverage, um, it was anticipated that Syrian refugees would be stereotyped, they would be pre- like injured prejudice, and then receive perce- perceptions of disapproval. Uh, because of, you know, theories of neoliberalism, for example, and mm-hmm. uh, which values more capitalistic endeavors. Um, and, but overall, based on the literature, the Canadian, there was kind of a tension because the Canadian resettlement policies were viewed by some to be positive because it was considered to be congruent with Canadian values. Um, but alternatively, for others, um, they viewed, you know, it negatively because they, due to stereotypes that Syrian refugees and we can imagine this kind of like extends to other Arab populations as well, based on you know that undifferentiated, undifferentiated, sorry, undifferentiated entity that they're kind of perceived as, mm. um, viewing them as you know resource dependent, or re- viewing the re- Syrian refugee men as dangerous and Syrian refugee women as oppressed, um, and these are you know inaccurate portrayals of Syrian refugees, um, mm-hmm. but that reinforced kind of people's contention and uncertainty regarding, you know, the government's response to the Syrian crisis. Um, and in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the stigmas that are endured, um, there's a lot of, you know, if we're bringing it back to, you know, autism specifically, there's a lot of, a lot of stigma toward, uh, autistic individuals as being, you know, viewed as you know, crazy or yep. insane um, yep. in, in in Middle Eastern societies, and uh, participants experience stigma through, you know, others misunderstanding them, avoiding them, pitying them, judging them, um, and these overall, you know, negative societal perceptions were, you know, deeply impactful for participants on multiple levels, um, because in a lot of way, a lot of ways that leads to them to not want to or not 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 want to but to not access um support because of you know not having the help seeking behaviors or feeling distanced from their community 
um, or feeling, you know, ashamed that they have an autistic child. Um, and um, for a lot of, you know, families, that's certainly the case. And I remember you you spoke to this a little bit at the beginning where you mentioned that for some people, they view, um, you know, um, autistic individuals, um, you know, as a, as a punishment. But on the other hand, you know, throughout their journey, I, I, there was one article that I had written that overwhelmingly, you know, and this speaks to Muslim um, parents, but they view them as, you know, uh, blessings or they accept them uh, as gifts from God, as mm. a product of God's will, they're being chosen uh, by God to, um, you know, have this autistic child because they can, they believe that they were pre-equipped with, you know, the, the resources to, to care for these kids. Mm. Um, and I guess where I'm going with this is that, you know, the, depending on where, you know, an individual is on their journey, um, really informs, I guess, their willingness to adhere to treatment or um, the rapport that they're able to build with clinicians. And um, that kind of spills into a lot of what we can do as clinicians to help or to support, um, you know, senior refugees with autistic kids, as well as, you know, third families with autistic kids and, and Muslim families with uh, autistic kids in terms of um, being able to focus on the fact that a lot of these families want to view their children through a strength-based lens and focusing on specific, you know, concerns rather than, you know, viewing their children as, as, as a, as a deficit is something that's really important. Um, as well as, you know, for, um, many, and, and let me know if I'm, if I'm talking too much, but no, no. Uh, for many you know, autism and being refugee, um, being a refugee witnessing war-related adversities is, you know, as I mentioned, part of their identity needs to be treatment and um, taking into consideration their pre-migration experiences with stigma toward autism being inherently negative um, mm -hmm. and all the bullying that they endured. Some parents, you know, attribute that to lack of treatment and lack of support. So just being, you know, welcoming them and having, you know, that, because one, I remember one participant indicated that she, one of the things that she was really grateful for here was that professionals treated her and built a humanitarian relationship with her because they were welcoming mm. her. And they didn't view, you know, her child as someone who wasn't, um, her, her wasn't, I guess, for lack of a better, better term, like worthy of having, um, you know, support and services. So, you know, kind of taking that approach as well as increasing the availability of wraparound supports because some families feel as though, mm. you know, it, it is, it is great that, you know, their kids are, um, receiving all of the supports and services, but sometimes the, you know, parents get left in the dust and show, and, and they're the gatekeepers for those supports and services to continue. Um, so really, you know, working with a whole, it, providing background supports and working with the entire family. Um, and, you know, I mentioned earlier the information, like informal information groups, you know, it's a support network is something that's really beneficial. Um, and providing psychoeducational resources to enhance, you know, an understanding of autism as well as allowing there to be, you know, flexibility in incorporating coping techniques rooted in cultural and religious practices, um, presenting information in the context of local knowledge and psychology. Those are all ways to, um, modify practices to be responsive culturally as well. Mm -hmm. There's a lot there. No, that's great. It's, is there a, uh, so was most of your work, so you said, I think one family was from Edmonton in Edmonton and yeah. the other two were in Calgary. Is that right? Yeah. 
is there a is there an Arab community in 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 those cities that you know that 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 you know sort of these folks you know have have been able to access or or that have been you know sort of supportive of, of this process and whatnot? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in both um, in both cities there are you know there's a big Arab community mm. um, and they were able to you know to gain some supports there, but it was interesting because these families migrated uh, between you know, 2017 to 2019. So crisis within a crisis, the COVID-19 you know, pandemic was something kind of derailed things for them as well. And kind of the supports and services that they they had were kind of, you know, pulled or, um, and I guess that aside, a lot of the time there is a sense of among, you know, their populations, a sense of that they need to access these supports for their kids um, elsewhere because they feel as though um, they feel as though there's a sorry and I'm just mm-hmm. referencing a note that I have here but um, they feel as though they're not able to discuss the functioning of their child with others because it's not because of that that stigma so they they end up distancing themselves. And what a lot of people find, um, you know, is that they become less, they have less of a strong relationship with their community than they did in the past um, as a result of um, seeking support and service for their autistic child or children. So um, there definitely is a, there's there, there's definitely a, you know, a community and that community is super helpful, but I think that there's a lot of variables that also for a lot of families kind of lead them to um, either not utilize that resource or find it that it wasn't as helpful for them. Cool. Um, Shifting again a bit, I would love to hear, I'd like to talk a bit about this, this raised model, uh, the raised between cultures model. It sounds really interesting. Um, 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 And, and, and sort of, you know, uh, and, and how it was kind of a, how you kind of applied it to to the you said you were, the, the factors would be applied to the findings of this study. Um, I was wondering, maybe it, could, it, it just seems like an, an interesting sort of um, uh, framework for maybe practitioners to be looking at in terms of you know um, uh, working with any with working with families sort of from any kind of. Um, um, you know, sort of uh, refugee or immigrant background. Um, w- would you be able to kind of talk a little bit about that? Sure. There is a lack of diversity when it comes to educational material depicting Black children in the field of applied behavior analysis. Human Expressions gives Black and Brown children realistic and detailed images of kids who look like them modeling everyday skills that may be difficult for them to communicate or express. At Human Expressions, the benefits of representation for black and brown kids in educational curricula are clear. Increased self-esteem, reducing stereotypes, and increased validation and support. To learn more, go to www.humanexpressions.org. That's human, H-U-E-M-A-N, expressions.org. Third secret word is... Calgary, C-A-L-G-A-R-Y. Um, yeah, for sure. I think that, and it was interesting that how I how I stumbled 
upon this, but mm -hmm. um, the raised between cultures model is it can be used to explore psychosocial adaptation among refugees specifically by considering you know, culture, their pre and post migration factors, socialization, and the intersecting influence of you know, multiple environments. So there there are six components, um, um, and it's you know that that raised part of you know raised between um, between cultures model is is the there's an acronym of reveal culture acknowledge pre-migration experiences identify post-migration systemic barriers support family and community strengths establish connections between environments and determine child outcomes together with families which is really a nice practical um, model to kind of superimpose onto the results of the study because I felt mm. that it offers a lot of really key uh, practical implications that you know um, clinicians can you know they can um, apply to their practice. Because there's a lot of that goes along with this model, but it follows really neatly um, the experiences uh, of of being a refugee coming, going from you know um, having that pre-migration experience of, of your home country and coming and resettling in a place you know such as Canada. Because um, you know, wealthy speaking, it's important to attend to culturally shaped behaviors that refugees migrate with and consider you know their adverse experience prior to resettling, because uh, these experiences ultimately impact their behaviors. Uh, expectations, understanding of what social, educational, and specialized services consist of, which can inform you know, psychoeducational practices and practice guidelines to help refugees navigate uh, the system and adjust to Canada. And one really interesting thing that I came across in the literature is that, uh, in terms of a culturally shaped behavior, is that you know, um, eye contact is is really important in terms of you know, it, you know, in, in, when we're when we're thinking about autism, eye contact is really important. But for, for you know, a lot of Arab families, and it depends on who you're making eye contact with, but that might not be a really good way of kind of, um, it might be a way, not a, not a very sensitive way to, if you're trying to promote eye contact with a, um, you know, Arab autistic child who, you know, based on their culture, that's not something that's appropriate, for example, with an authority figure. So if you're thinking of, about how, you know, culturally shaped behaviors are different across your know, cultures. Um, it can be really, you know, a good idea to kind of be sensitive to those things, because if you're trying to promote, you know, eye contact as part of the socially appropriate behavior, but then, you know, based on their culture, uh, an individual's culture, that's something that's, that's actually the social custom is to not make eye contact with an authority mm -hmm. figure or with, a, or with a parent or with an authority figure might even be that professional who's working with them. Um, and then there's also the post Migration barriers for Syrian refugee families um, of autistic children, including you know that language competency, transportation, socialization, all those things that I had mentioned before, and specifically with autism, knowing that a barrier is the lack of knowledge of existing specialized programming, unfamiliarity with adult service application processes, uh, a lack of support network for themselves uh, for autism, and being able to bolster that would be helpful, and the knowledge of available supports and services and how to access them. Mm -hmm. Um, so considering those variables as well as, you know, capitalizing, and I, I think that a lot of the time, you know, clinicians try to capitalize on family strengths in order to enhance treatment outcomes and trying to take an ecological, you know, an ecological approach to, uh, working with families through bridging gaps between their different environments, you know, thinking about home and school, um, and collaborating with families to ensure that the developmental outcomes are doable and, um, are part of the goals for the family and, um, are, are you know that are on the same page in terms of the importance of those developmental outcomes those are all 
good key ways of, you know, thinking about based on the race between cultures model, working with uh, Syrian refugee families of autistic children while considering that their pre-migration experiences are, you know, a lot of the times filled with, you know, trauma and stigma toward autism and a really, you know, difficult displacement experiences in their post-migration um, although there's a lot of, you know, really gratefulness toward the sports and services available to, to them, there still are, uh, based on, you know, the, the voice of the Syrian refugees themselves, gaps to further, you know, enhance their adaptation to resettling um, in Canada. Right on. Um, I would be ris- remiss not to address um, uh, your eye contact point. Um, uh, first off, I think it's great that this is, this is not something that's required by, you know, Arab, Arab culture, because, um, uh, as, as, as my many, uh, neurodiverse colleagues reminded me, um, um, that, you know, eye contact is probably something we shouldn't be working on at all with any autistic children. Um, absolutely. Uh, um, a, because it, um, it uh, for for many of them it actually causes physical discomfort and pain um, totally. um uh, but also because um um the it's interesting it sort of speaks to and i'm, I'm digressing here uh, but it speaks to sort of the you know just general sort of you know um uh, interventions with neurodiverse uh, children that you know things like eye contact require so much um mental effort that mm-hmm. it actually reduces the attention to, to the teacher or to the individual that they're communicating with because they're so focused on doing this eye contact thing correctly, which again is quite uncomfortable and at the same time is distracting them from actually paying attention to what's been what's yeah. happening in, in, in the situation. So I just wanted to add that in. Totally. Yeah, and I think also when you think about it from a diagnostic perspective more specifically as well, it's interesting too, because if you're, I guess, diagnosing an individual you know um with autism based on no diagnostic um materials that you know code eye contact it can also be like important to consider those things as well absolutely um curious about um just uh some thoughts we talked a little bit when we met before about sort of um ways clinicians especially i think those that maybe don't identify as as arabic or arab um sorry um um buy-in may be more difficult uh just in terms of just just being a behavior consultant trying to sort of provide supports for these families as someone that maybe doesn't identify with their culture and their language and 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 sort of all of those those important pieces um you know and and that's going to be the case i mean we just we 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 don't have representation in our field um when it comes to sort of you know uh you know the 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 percentage of folks from different backgrounds is not you know, if you and if you look at sort of just even the behavior analyst sort of, uh, and I know behavior analysis is not the only um, treatment modality for 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 kids with autism, but um, something like I think something like ninety three percent of 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 behavior analysts are 
are are, are white um, 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 and, and uh, uh, so like four percent are black and then certainly any of the other cultures I think you're you're in the less than one percent sort of category so point being it's very likely an Arabic family is not an Arab family I keep saying Arabic an Arab family is not going to get um, you know an Arab behavior consultant working with them uh, and so what are sort of some of the things, you know, uh, non-Arab, uh, you know, professionals, you know, can think about in terms of, you know, building a relationship and getting buy-in from, you know, Arab families? So I think that the, the first piece to consider is that, um, to, is to explore kind of those things individual with the family themselves because um just as a product of this study there was it was interesting because i was under kind of the impression that you know um you know taking a culturally responsive approach and um you know acting with culturally or being culturally humble and you know the cultural humility is and of course those things are really important but it was interesting and because one of these findings that came out of this study was that um some families really varied in the extent to which they felt culture was uh, relevant or important for working with their children and for their families, mm. um, which is something that kind of struck me because mm -hmm. um, culture definitely permeates, you know, the resettlement experience of Syrian refugees, and uh, to varying degree, varying or sorry, to very varying degrees, highlighting you know, the importance of uh, taking a non-judgment and unbiased, personalized approach. But broadly speaking. Um, Culture was either viewed as something that either didn't make a big difference while servicing their children or something that should be uh, considered to enhance treatment outcomes and comfortability for others. Uh, so some families felt that their previous experiences with cultural discrimination led them to opt for less emphasis on culture by, by proxy of that. Um, and uh, that was kind of evident through one of the participants said, you know, I'm, she said in her quotes, uh, I am a human being and I have humanity to share with, not a culture. So for her, um that was less of kind of kind of a the an important approach for her and not on that same token some families felt that culture was imperceptible for their child or that you know the perception of culture being impaired as part of their diagnostic presentation was likely uh for them to you know they didn't want to have it uh be something that was part of practice but then for others they said that you know our cultural traditions and customs are a huge part of our child's identity so i think that you know thinking about that piece First, and making sure it's personalized to the you know, family um, is the first kind of first building block to put into place. But then also, um, there's a lot of I mean, cultural considerations to include, um, such as you know, being sensitive to social stigmas that they may have experienced, and kind of uh, really being sensitive to those things because you wouldn't want to um, either invalidate or perpetuate uh, those same sorts of things for for the families and. Um, being really sensitive to religious attitudes and perceptions of autism, because um, there, there tends to be um, a you know an understanding or a assumption that all you know uh, Arab or Muslim families, um, and this speaks more to the religion view, you know, a child with autism as a punishment. Um, whereas, and I mentioned this before, they a lot of them view the child as a blessing, and yeah. um, you know, to to come in with that assumption might you know lead to you know a fracture between the therapeutic relationship um 
as well as what it means to either be from or uh, be within a Middle Eastern community um, and be just valid being understanding of tensions. So I know that a lot of you know Middle Eastern families that I've worked with um, have this tension between um, you know being grateful uh, to you know understanding their their culture and a lot of it has to comes back to their um, their conviction and and God you know being you know feeding them with a child and um, ways in which you know a lot of them feel as though they there's a tension between hope and acceptance um, in terms of the wanting their, their child's condition uh, to be bettered and uh, in, in, in their words. But also on the same front, there's a lot of, because of that stigma, they're really hesitant for me to work with them at first mm. because they feel as because I am Arab and part of the Arab community that, you know, that information might get out, mm. uh, which of course, you know, from, from an ethical perspective, you know, that's never going to be the case, but, you know, just to validate the Canada foster those, those families, they that's that's something that kind of they're, they're really they're really hesitant about at the beginning so that confidentiality and it really interacts with that social mm. social stigma that i discussed before is something that's really important to a lot of families because you know that hesitancy but i've also you know being a a, a man who um and, and this doesn't really this is not because of this is more because of you know my sex but um have been rejected to work with certain families just because of comfortability as well. So mm. um, because of the nature of my work going into the home and uh, in a lot of, you know, families, um, the um, husband, you know, is working, you know, out of the home and it's the mom who's taking care of the child. And mm. there's a lack of comfortability in terms of, you know, someone of the opposite sex coming into the home and, and, and working with the family. So, it's important to also be cognizant of those things too, because and of course this varies quite considerably across you know individuals, but there are certain constraints in terms of communication, um, you know, in terms of shaking hands or in terms of um, you know some some indiv individuals prefer to for one you know sex over the other to be um, to be addressed in you know consult consultation and you know those things are not overarching. Mm -hmm. you know, by all means are not overarching considerations for a lot of families. Those things don't really matter, but there are good things to keep into consideration because certainly for those families who have constraints across you know, the communication between a family member, um, specifically like myself as a man going into the home, there's constraints with regards to what kind of communication can occur if that working relationship is to actually exist or possibly mm -hmm. exist um, is important because not considering those things can tarnish you know, the therapeutic alliance. Um, and I think that a big thing as well is just thinking about, you know, a lot of families who come from Middle Eastern cultures, you know, have a collectivistic view, um, where it's, you know, the community, you know, taking care of, you know, a child or, mm. um, a lot of the resources are coming from, um, family and community members. And I think that a really good way to kind of bolster, um, supports and I've done this as, Part of my work is to provide, you know, psychoeducation to other family members or community members, uh, to help, you know, strengthen that, that because of, because, because that's such an important aspect of, you know, their, their daily functioning. Mm -hmm. Um, it can really make a difference in kind of the outcomes for the child and the parents feeling is whether or not they're equipped to, to manage. 
behaviors and, and whatnot. And, um, yeah, those are kind of a few things that I feel as though were kind of key for me to consider. Um, especially just being really mindful of what kinds of, um, beliefs, you know, that parents have regarding the, how often autism comes about. So being like understanding that some parents feel as though, um, you know, it's a product of like, evil eye or black magic. Um, mm. and they utilize certain, um, religious coping or they'll use like religious, um, treatment approaches such as, you know, supplication or reading scriptures or accessing, um, supports from religious leaders. And I feel like a lot of the time families feel as though if they go and access support from a clinician mm -hmm. that, um, they have to rid of those things. Those things can no longer be part of mm. kind of the repertoire of, you know, managing, coping or working with their, their child's diagnosis, which I think that in order to make families aware that, you know, accessing support and adhering to the treatment is, is a good, you know, a good approach to take is to say that, yeah, these things can be complementary. that you yes. don't have to, you don't have to stop, you know, you don't have to stop supplication. You don't have to stop, you know, going and seeing uh, your religious leader. You don't have to stop reading the scripture. Mm -hmm. um, those things can still be part of your life. And in a lot of the ways, those things can be incorporated into practice as well. Um, in terms of, you know, kind of the um, menu of, different approaches that a family can take, you know, in terms of strategies and whatnot, but, um, yeah, just really hmm. making them aware that they don't have to stop right. you know, with the religion, with their, their, they don't have to stop seeking help from family. They don't have to stop all of these things. Cause this can be, this can be part of the, part of the treatment. And that's, I guess, part of being, mm -hmm. you know, culturally responsive. That's such a, such a huge point. Really? enlightening um uh you know I, i'm hoping to kind of have these conversations with folks from sort of as many cultures and backgrounds as i possibly can because you you learn so much more you learn so much more when you have the, the conversation but also you see a lot of the similarities too and 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 sort of you know there 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 are really sort of basic things i think you can do with working with someone with anyone, right? I mean, because the other thing is culture isn't always visible, right? So, you know, it's not always obvious that someone is, could be from another, another cultural background. And so, you know, just, just, uh, but, but, but there's so many sort of westernized, um, you know, uh, beliefs and behaviors and actions that, you know, I think we just assume are, 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 are across the board and, 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 and they clearly aren't. So this has been just really valuable. You said at the beginning of the conversation that you're now uh, working on your doctorate. Um, and so, and that's in, is it, that's in, is that in psychology is or. Yeah. In, uh, the school and applied child psychology program. Right. And so are you continuing this sort of work in, 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 in your doctoral work? And, and if so, maybe just tell us a little about what, what, what you're working on these days. Sure. Um, so I've taken a little bit of a, in terms of my dissertation, uh, I've took, taken a little bit of a, of a pivot still, I guess, related, but, um, I'm planning to look, to, to look at the, I, 
I, I like looking at people's experiences and I like understanding, you know, um, perspectives and, uh, mm. concerns through the lens of, you know, a lot of the time they're, they're kind of experts, you know, and yeah. not only are they experts in their experience, but they're experts in kind of that, uh, concern that I'm, I'm, um, wanting to know more about curiously, but so lived experience, but I'm looking at, um, the lived experiences of trauma, um, among autistic um adults so it'll mm. be i guess a little bit of a of a change in terms of you know, population still looking at autism but um still ironing out the details in terms of exactly what my research is question is going to be but um essentially what i want to know is um through you know their experiences um going through the diagnostic process or with intervention uh was trauma something that was attended to because a lot of the time um trauma is often overlooked with individual you know for, for autistic individuals and if it is overlooked then that can have really big kind of impacts on the kind of outcomes uh that are produced in terms of if you know when you're trying to work with the families or uh, life outcome satisfaction quality of life mm. um so that's kind of like my approach there i'm still planning to do uh, work, uh, kind of in this, you know, with, with, with Muslims, um, their populations and those sorts of things, but that's probably going to be more, I guess, not auxiliary, auxiliary works in yeah. terms of, you know, publications and stuff. But my dissertation is going to be focusing more on, uh, trauma and autism and the intersection between the two. So with the, that sounds so awesome. So with the autistic adults, that's not going to be just sort of folks that are Arab, but, but just any autistic adults in, in, in general. So you may have a bigger pool to draw from too for that exactly. as well. So that might help with uh, with getting some data. Uh, awesome. Really cool. Well, I, I really hope, uh, I think that, that that study sounds super fascinating and I think it'll be really applicable to a lot of uh, what the, the listening audience is into. So I, I, I'd love to have you back when you're Dr. Bernier and, 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 and talk about your dissertation and kind of what you came up with. I think that'd be awesome. Totally. I would look forward to it. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, Abdullah, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Cheers. Cheers.